and welcome to Our Digital Futures with Permanent.org. This podcast explores the ways in which we can all preserve our memories within a changing digital landscape. My name is Amanda Meeks, and I'm the Community and Partnerships Manager here at Permanent, and I'm also your podcast host. This episode is all about FOSTA, or the Free Open Source Stories Digital Archive, which is a permanent bite-for-bite grantee. The founder of FOSTA, Heather Meeker, was able to join me for a conversation about the project, how it got started, and where it's going. I'm really excited to talk with today's guest, Heather Meeker, about the Free Open Source Stories Digital Archive, or FOSTA. Welcome, and thank you for being here today. I just want to start out by asking how you're doing. I'm doing just fine, thank you, and I'm happy to be talking to you today. Great. Would you mind taking a moment and just introducing yourself and sharing a little bit about you and how you got here? Of course. I'm an attorney and a venture capitalist, and I've been working in the open source area for many years. I'm basically a software licensing lawyer, but over the years, I've been focusing more and more on open source, and I'm in a venture capital fund that only invests in commercial open source development. I'm also a former programmer, but my programming experience was long ago and uh, it developed uh, for me a a love of software, Uh, but uh, my clients and portfolio companies are the people who really know what they're doing. Wonderful, thank you for that. So, We'll jump right in um, with a little bit more information about FOSTA. I know this project really aims to uncover and record the stories of the first generation of free and open source software developers. Can you tell us a little more about the project and how it got started? Yes. During the pandemic, I was um, sort of mulling big questions like many other people were. And unfortunately, uh, someone I knew who had been involved in open source for a long time passed away, not from COVID, it turned out, but nevertheless, a loss. And it occurred to me that the early generations of people involved in the free and open source software movement were aging, as I am. I'm sort of uh, one of the uh, people kind of half a generation after the original group. And uh, what occurred to me is that we had not heard a lot of their personal stories about why they got involved. There's a lot out there about free and open source philosophy, and there's a lot out there about the technology, but the kind of people who had participated in this movement are sometimes not all that forthcoming about personal questions. Sometimes they are, sometimes not. But to me, open source has changed the world greatly for the better. And I thought it was important to understand why the original participants did what they did. When you write open source software, it's a gift to the world. And open source not only created great advances in technology, but also opened up the idea of a gift economy. And uh, I wanted to understand why, why do people do that? Because the next time it needs to happen, it would be useful to understand what incentives people have to share that broadly with the world. 
Yeah, I love that this is really about personal stories of the folks involved and kind of the why behind the work, their life's work. I know you mentioned that uh, people aren't as forthcoming with their personal stories as maybe you would you would hope for, but are there other challenges or if you want to like dig a little more deeper into that one in particular um, around collecting these personal stories, I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, I think it's mostly that the developers assume that people wouldn't be that interested in their personal stories, not necessarily that they're reluctant to share them. But uh, if you want them to share, you have to ask specifically for their personal journey. Also, open source development is asynchronous for the most part. And for the most part, you know, it's text-based. It's not a face-to-face thing. And for that reason, many people who are not comfortable in social settings like to participate. I, by the way, kind of count myself in that category. I understand why it's so appealing. So Uh, When you ask people specifically, well, you know, what made you do this? What on a personal level made you do this? Uh, Then they start to think a little bit differently about it. Many of them have shared greatly about technical ideas and philosophical ideas, but not about their personal stories. Also, you know, I think it's great when you have a movement like this that enables people who might, you know, not be comfortable interacting real time face to face with people, they're allowed to participate too. And in fact, you know, they're some of the people driving the movement. So I think that's very interesting and a wonderful opportunity. Yeah, that's amazing. I I want to mention that I I think the the feeling of my my story isn't important is so common with people in our society. I read an article recently about a woman who became a hospice volunteer. And one of the things that she noticed in doing life reviews with people was that they would always start out by apologizing and saying, well, I don't really have anything interesting to say, or I don't have any amazing life stories. But that almost always proved to be untrue once they really got into it. So I love that you are acknowledging that and that that's a, a common problem, I think, universally that we don't, we don't talk about nearly enough. Yeah, also, having talked to a few people who were in open source, some of them got involved very early in life, and they got involved because open source software was available to them, even if they had very little access to resources, particularly people in the developing world. You know, open source could be the only way they really get access to technology legally. I've talked to a few people who have started working on open source by quote unquote hacking into computer systems, which may, I don't mean to say that's Uh, doing something inappropriate. It's just that they were trying to figure out how to do the things they wanted to do in a practical way without any help from anybody else. And I think that's also a great aspect of it is that people would get involved just 
because they wanted to, and even if there was no around, no one around to help them. And then when they got involved in open source, they found that there was this broad community of people that they could collaborate with. Mm. Yeah, the the term hacking, I feel like, is always a a challenging one because it it often conjures up, you know this idea of somebody who is doing something malicious, but when really it's just trying to solve a problem of some sort or iterating on something, making something work better than it did before. And that's how I think of hacking anyways. So. I, I think that's the, the, the sense of it that most people in the software community mean yeah. that word. Um, it, I guess to the broader world, it has negative connotations, but in mm-hmm. the software world, it's mostly just, you know, trying to figure out something until it works. Definitely. Yeah. I think that's that's good for our listeners to know, because I don't know that everybody who listens to this podcast would necessarily know that. Yeah. I mean, if you imagine somebody sitting at home with a electronics tester and a soldering iron trying to fix their radio, you know, that's, that's kind of what it's like. Maybe you have access to some broken parts or something that nobody wanted anymore, and you're trying to figure out how it works and make it work. And that's kind of how software hacking works too. You may not have access to a lot of resources, but you're trying to cobble things together. Yeah, that's the perfect analogy. Thank you. So I know your project is not about any one particular open source project. It's all about all of them. And well, I think this beautifully highlights the interconnectedness of the people of these types of movements. Can you talk about the interconnectedness of the open source movement in particular? Sure. There were, by the way, um, at least half a dozen to a dozen really important projects in the early days that um, they tended to have different communities working on them, but there were many people who worked on multiple projects across communities. Once, Once they got involved in one of them, they realized, oh, this is actually a way to collaborate, so I'm going to get involved with other ones as well. And so you started to see a lot of cross pollination. Many uh, people who got involved in open source seem to have done so just because, uh, well, there was this project that I needed for my work or for some personal use. And so I started getting involved in it. And often they didn't really know that much about open source models generally when they got involved. Then they got involved because they had a, a task to do then they found out how much they liked it, and then they started participating in other projects. So you saw a lot of people who were moving from community to community and uh, collaborating with people. And then you saw people saying, okay, this is the way to collaborate. So what I do in the future is going to be open source. Wonderful. So how does this project support the new and future generations of open source developers and coders? The project isn't um, actually entirely limited to the first generation. We are starting with the first generation because there is a time aspect to hearing from the first generation. We want to make sure to capture their stories while we can. But we're also involving some more recent or younger participants in open source movement as well. And as we go forward, we hope to find more and more of them. 
I think we'll probably find that some of the motivations are a little bit different for the first generation and for those who go after, but we'll have to see what people say in the stories. I'm just making that guess based on sort of anecdotal evidence. But also, I think that hearing the personal stories of people who started the movement, it's extremely inspiring. And anyone who's thinking, well, can I really do this? Can I really be involved? After watching them talk about what their motivations were, I think would be very inspired to do what they're not sure they can do. And I'd also say, by the way, that being a coder isn't the only way to have participated in the movement. There are lots of people who do other things like testing and quality control and community management. And those sort of functions are a little bit more common in people who came a little later as open source became more prevalent and many more people started getting involved in it. But we also hope to include people who are not coders, but who have been involved in the movement and have helped uh, generate great products and, and software, even though they weren't exactly writing code. Mm. Yeah. It's important to capture kind of everyone who was involved, seems like. I know that FOSTA is a bite for bite grantee, and you are partnering with us to make sure that the raw oral histories kind of stay in the public domain and are permanently available. Can you talk a little bit more about the other partnerships that are are part of this project? Sure. Well, so by the way, when I got involved in this, I I don't know anything about doing oral histories. I just thought (laughs) this was something that needed to be done. And Mm -hmm. so I reached out to people who knew a lot more than me. And I quickly learned that there are many moving parts to doing an oral history. And you're Listeners probably know more about this than I do, but uh, you have to first record the oral histories. You have to then transcribe and index them so that when people use them, they can access them easily. It's, It's very difficult to go through videos and find something you're looking for unless you have that meta information. And then Uh, They need to be stored properly, which is where permanent comes in. And I'm sure your listeners know this, but it's not as simple as just putting something on Google Drive because that is not future-proof. You need something that's more robust and is going to be more reliable. So we have people involved. um, First of all is Their Story, which is an oral history platform. And Zach and his his crew at uh, at their story are extremely expert in collecting video and audio oral histories and providing the tools to index them and make them accessible then we also have the Rochester Institute of Technology who is helping us with things like um getting interviewers together students are involved they also have a robust filmmaking aspect to what they do at uh, RIT because you know the the raw video is probably a little difficult to consume but we hope that people will want to make documentaries or 
use the videos or the information in the videos to do other kinds of materials that will become accessible. In the longer future, you know, we hope to have something like an interactive website where people can look at particular clips, do research and so forth so that they can like consume what we've created in a, in a, in a reasonable way. We don't expect anybody to watch hundreds of hours of oral histories, but things like clips and, you know, write-ups of what, what was going on that we hope to do things like that too. Although I think that's probably step two or three. So those are the major players helping us. We also have a lot of volunteers who are helping us with interviewing and also, you know, contributing to support funding for the project and uh, also to be kind of a board of advisors for the project as well, because we have to figure out who to ask and who to do the interviews and uh, and how to prioritize those giving, given the funding that we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that the, there are so many possibilities with how this can be used in the future in terms of providing access to researchers and creating films and just really focusing on telling these stories and making them more widely known. This is such an incredible project. And I'm, I'm really honored that we got to sit down and, and have a conversation about it. Well, you know, I am very interested in the history of technology. The Mm -hmm. thing about technology is that it's, uh, as soon as it's outdated, it's kind of old news. And so there's not a lot of focus on the history of technology until much later, usually. And then by that time, you've lost the opportunity to talk to the people who were originally involved in it. So for me, uh, part of what's great about a project like this is that we really get to, in a shorter time frame, take a look at the amazing things that people were doing. I mean, if you look at what our world is like, you know, people can hardly imagine what it was like before we had, say, mobile phones, and it hasn't really been that long, or before the internet, and it hasn't really been that long. And so these changes, you know, open source actually underlay a lot of the changes in technology that we experience today. You know, we're, we're talking on a a platform right now that runs on open source technology. Your phone runs on open source technology. Most of the internet does. And so I think it's really important to sort of capture these inflection points because they made so much difference in how we lived our lives. We've lived our lives. And also the fact that it was open source was a way to uh, make sure that technology could be used by everyone and also that it would be auditable and understandable by everyone. So um, I want the project to fill a little niche that probably wouldn't be filled otherwise. Mm. That's beautifully said. Thank you. Thank you, Heather, for joining us today. Oh, it's my great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much to our listeners and our special guest, Heather Meeker, for sharing a little bit about the FOSTA project And for those of you who are curious about our Bite for Bite program, to learn more about that or to apply, visit www.permanent.org backslash bite for bite. 
The Permanent Legacy Foundation is a nonprofit whose mission is to preserve and provide access to the digital legacy of all people for the historical and educational benefit of future generations. Our web and mobile app, Permanent.org, is designed for personal digital archiving and allows anyone to preserve their memories and traditions safely and securely without recurring subscription fees. We also support nonprofit organizations in their long-term preservation efforts through our storage granting program known as Byte for Byte, which you heard a little bit about in this episode. Anyone can create a free account and start archiving today. Special thank you to our editors at Next Day Podcast. Until next time. <laughs>